Well, thanks so much for making the time to uh, tune in, listen in. As uh, my name is Jeff Fuller, Jay Fuller Interviews, Jay Fuller Interviews on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Jay Fuller Interviews, and now the Backfire Podcast with Jeff Fuller of Jay Fuller Interviews on Apple iTunes and Google Podcasts. Uh, we believe people's stories make our stories much better. If we take the time and listen to unlearn what we thought was right to relearn what is right, one with a tremendous story is the one, the only Mike Rouse. Mike, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing well, and I'm just going to jump to it. How are your legs <laughs> feeling after just completing 31 miles, 31 days for a phenomenal cause? So that took place last month, but how are your legs? What does your cover look like? You know, Jeff, it, if I didn't see it for myself, I wouldn't believe it. Uh, but I ran 31 miles a day and never had a single ache. Wow. Uh, I would wake up every morning and felt like I ran a, an easy 5K the day before, three, three, four miles the day before. I, I would have never believed. And I did it last year. So this is this was kind of a repeat. This year was much more difficult because there was a lot of travel involved. Um, last year, you know, because COVID was, we were kind of right in the middle of COVID, uh, yeah. with everything was locked down and closed. And, you know, uh, basically we were all, all quarantined. I was sitting in my house doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, and so I, I just ran out the front door and, and would come back and refuel and things. And actually it was just much simpler this year. I had 18 days out of the 31. I was actually on the road traveling with wow. job and different different things to trying to make this a little bit more uh aware to other people um so anyway uh a lot of mornings i got up at, i had to get up at two o'clock in the morning to start running uh in order to catch a flight or to make a drive to another city uh, so it, it was very difficult but I, I say all that um i still woke up every morning feeling fresh and ready to run so it went well that's awesome. And uh, you can find information about uh, what Mike did, bootcampaign.org, bootcampaign.org. I just want to jump in. I can't remember if the last time you were on, I shared, but my cousin was part of the Vermont National Guard. And unfortunately, he was killed in Ramadi, killed in action. What was your uh, affection for the military? Where did that all start? Actually started back in 2002 uh 19 years ago when i was at my running group at the time i was living in san diego now i'm back in texas but at the time i was living in san diego and had a, a running group that met every saturday morning uh at a place called ski beach there in san diego and it was kind of the elite of the elite runners and not that i was the elite i was i was good as an ultra runner but i'm talking about the 5k 10k marathon distance we had some of the best in in the city actually some of the best in the nation we had five of our people in my group that had been to olympic trials in the marathon and we had uh, four triathletes who were ironman world champions wow in this group so again it was uh it was if you went to a race in san diego and saw the top 15 or 20 people uh 80 percent of them were out of this running group so uh anyway one one morning in 2002 um here are these all these elite runners who are thin and wiry and you know fit as they can be and uh here come these two big guys that are six four 230 pounds thereabouts and uh, all tatted up and they were navy seals and uh, we became very close friends. Uh, they could hang with us, not as fast as the <laughs> fastest guys, but their strength and endurance and effort was uh, uh, as much as anybody else's or more. And we became very close friends. And uh, they started calling me Pops because I was kind of their West Coast dad. They were neither one from San Diego, obviously. Um, one of them was from Rockford, Iowa. The other one was from Montana. And uh, like I said, we became very, very close. And I... Uh, I, I, I just loved training with them. We ran marathons together, did some Ironmans together. Um, and then on August the 6th, 2011, uh, JT, John Tomlinson, which was one of those two young men, uh, was shot down in a helicopter in Afghanistan along with 30 other U.S. military. It was the largest single loss of life since 9-11 uh, for our military and, and is to this day. Uh, but there were 31 U.S. Uh, soldiers on that helicopter. Uh, it was a mission called Extortion 17. And so at JT's death, <clears throat> I really kind of took on the challenge of trying to honor his life 
and bring awareness of what our military does for us and the sacrifice they're willing to make. Not all of them, obviously, not all of our military <laughs> lose their lives in battle, uh, but they do sign on a dotted line that they're willing to do so if called upon. And so it just really became a mission of mine uh, back in 2011 when we lost JT to do what I could to reach out and bring awareness of our military and their sacrifices, as well as the sacrifices of their surviving families. Yeah. Um, and as I got to a chance to know these families down through the years, especially this year, more than ever, I, I got to know a lot of these families because we communicated and I would tell them that I was running for their son the next day or in a couple of days. Uh, I'll never forget what one father said not to me, but he responded on Facebook. Somebody said something about Memorial Day and and uh, was he going to celebrate Memorial Day <laughs> and, or how was he going to celebrate, I should say. Right, right. And his response was every day is Memorial Day for me yeah. since, since I lost yeah. my son. He said every day for 10 years I've had Memorial Day. Um, so, yeah, it, it's uh, it, that's how it started 2002. And here we are 19 years later. And uh, I'm grateful that I have the, the God given ability and strength to do what I do. Yeah, there's so much in that Memorial Day. Um, speaking with my cousin, uh, who my cousin's dad, my cousin was actually six months younger than me, the one that was killed in Ramadi. But his dad said, you want to honor your son's life, but it's so difficult with all of these memorials and memories. But you're just so fortunate that that you can. And I'm just so glad that uh, there's people like you uh, out there doing that. Uh, I first heard you with the Team Never Quit podcast with Morgan Latrell, and that was quite the interview. And I certainly um, referenced that a lot. But you with those guys was just really phenomenal. It's open doors for you. Could you just talk about how you got to meet Marcus and Morgan Latrell? Well, I actually got to meet Marcus and Morgan through my friend JT. Um, again, he was he was from a small town in Iowa, Rockford, Iowa, a town of 800 people. Uh, but after, and I couldn't tell you the time frame now, but a few months after we had got, got to be friends through running, and we're running again every Saturday morning, doing some long runs on Sunday mornings early, uh, training for marathons. And then we ran his first marathon. Uh, I ran it with him there in San Diego. But uh, after a few months of, of getting, becoming his friend and, and, and running buddy, he said to me one day, he says, hey, Pops, there's a couple of Navy SEAL buddies of mine. They're very, very, very close to me. Uh, they're twin brothers that are from Texas. And he said, I got to introduce you to them because he, obviously they're a lot younger than you. But he said, they, they talk like you. They act like you. They have the same mannerisms as you. He said, y'all are just so much alike. You're just them in an older body. And I said, yeah, that'd be awesome. And of course, at the time, this is 2002. Uh, you know, n none of the stuff had happened to them that it has happened since. You know, Marcus had not gone through Operation Red Wing and, you know, been able to write his book and things. But I just met him as another Navy SEAL. Uh, but we became very good friends as well and uh, started hanging out with them. And uh, I say they call me Pops too. <laughs> J <laughs> JT kind of started it. But uh, along the way, I I've become friends with many, many Navy SEALs uh, introduced either through JT or now through Marcus and Morgan and, and Bo and some of the other guys, boss, they all have nicknames. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so we became very close. And when they heard my story of my life, they last summer after the 31 for 31, they said, you know, pops, not only did you do that, but you've got some other things in your life that you've done. <laughs> and we would love to have you on the team. Never quit because you're a guy who truly does never quit. Right. Right. And that was a phenomenal interview. And for those that aren't familiar, uh, Marcus Luttrell, the movie Lone Survivor, his book Lone Survivor is portrayed there. But the last time we spoke, you had just uh, received eye surgery and there were some complications. How is your eye now? How are you doing? Uh, it's good. It's uh, I don't know how much you know about retina surgery or detached retina. I had a detached retina and a cataract uh, in my right eye. Uh, and so I went in not knowing about the retina part. I just thought I had a cataract because I had talked to some friends that had had cataract surgery and they'd kind of given their symptoms and it sounded like mine. So I went into a cataract doctor and uh, he examined me. And after about 30 minutes or so, he says, well, Mr. House, I got some good news and some bad news. He said, the good news is you do have a cataract, but I can easily take care of that. The bad news is you have a detached retina. And that's wow. a major, major problem because yeah. you have to have that surgery first or you should have that surgery first. And I said, OK, so he he immediately called and got um, 
the top guy here in Abilene, Texas, where I'm at, and uh, got me set up an appointment that after very afternoon. And so I went over and saw this this gentleman, this doctor, and he examined me and said, yes, you do definitely have a detached retina and it's pretty severe. Um, I'm going to schedule you for surgery tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, doc, I'm, I'm going out of town this afternoon on business. I'll be back Thursday. And he says, no, you're going to have surgery in the morning. This was on a Monday. This was on a Monday. I remember it quite well. It was November the, the 3rd. Uh, and, and I said, you mean I have to, you, is that serious? He said, yes. He said, you could be driving tomorrow and lose sight in that eye. He said, you're just lucky it's wow. not, it hasn't happened yet. And he said, we need to do that. And then you can, when it heals up, you can have your cataract surgery. So we did the surgery. He put a CO2 bubble in it to hold the, the retina in place. And I had to lay on my stomach for six days, uh, not getting up except to eat or shower, restroom. Uh, but other than that, I was laying face down, not just in bed horizontal, but face down, which is not as easy as it's, 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 <laughs> it, it's pretty darn tough. I, I got to yeah, tell yeah. you. Um, and the only way I could do it was to lay over the side of the bed. You know, I just laid across the bed with my head kind of hanging over so wow. I could look down at the floor uh, because just my face in the pillow didn't work. But anyway, I did that for six days and went back um, uh, about a week after that. And he examined me and he says, well, unfortunately, it didn't stay attached. It's already re 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 unattached itself. But he said, let's go ahead and do the cataract surgery. We did that. And then we had a second retina surgery. And this time they put silicone oil in it and I had it retested uh, 60, uh, 90 days later. And then again, 90 days after that. And so far it has stayed attached. They're going to leave the silicone oil in there for a while, which kind of makes my vision a little blurry in the right eye, but it's, it's good. It's good. Well, well, we'll continue to pray uh, for you <clears throat> Thank and that you. healing. And, uh, we're, I am so grateful for what you've done. Uh, and your story is phenomenal. Last time that you came on, you shared how you were related to Kay Warren, the wife of Rick Warren. Yes. And you actually had an opportunity to speak at Saddleback Church. Could you just share before we get into your story, uh, when Kay first married Rick and then Rick and Saddleback Church really took off, what was that experience like for you to have the opportunity to speak at Saddleback? Well, to be honest with you, when he asked me, I was out there. I had just gone out to Southern California, actually Northern California, uh, to run, run the Western States 100 uh, race. Uh, and when I finished on Sunday, is the Saturday-Sunday race. Um, and, and so when I finished on Monday, we drove down to Orange County, uh, my family and I, to see him, see them. And uh, we were going to stay a week and just kind of let me recover from the 100-mile race. Again, this is back in probably not well it was 1992 i know it was my first year to run western states it was 1992 and so i'd been out of prison for about five years and you know we were just gonna hang out and relax down there for a few days and on tuesday or wednesday rick says so you're gonna be here through sunday and i said yeah we're gonna leave on monday morning to drive back to texas and he says great i want you to speak in the church on on sunday <laughs> and i'm like what do you mean speak he says i want you to tell your testimony to the, to the church. He said, we have five services. At the time, they were still meeting in a tent. They hadn't built a building yet. They were still in these monster, monster, uh, like circus type tents. Yeah. Uh, and he said, uh, we have five services. And he said, I want you to speak in them and, and give your testimony about what God did in your life uh, after prison. And I was really, really shocked, very appreciative. And it was, it was quite an opportunity uh, because, it, you know, hordes of people were there. Yeah. I don't, I, I couldn't tell you how many thousands, not thousands, uh, in each service. Uh, and it was, it was quite remarkable. Had you spoken or shared your testimony before that? Yes. Oh, many, many times. Uh, in 1987, when I was released from prison, I was, shortly thereafter had the opportunity to start an, a nonprofit, a 501c3 called Exodus Ministry. Wow. Working with ex-convicts and their families and helping them get re-entered back into society. And I realized that, you know, guys coming out of prison in some respects don't really have a shot, to be honest, because I had a college degree. I'd owned my own construction company with my father. I had a loving family that was very supportive. I'd been in church all my life. And even though I made this monster mistake and got sent to prison, I knew how to live and live yeah. properly. And I had a support system that was behind me, a church, a family, education, 
business experience, et cetera, a good resume. Uh, most guys coming out of prison didn't graduate high school. Their right. family's given up on them. Uh, they're scared of a church because it's for perfect people, as we all know. Um, and, their, and their resume is armed robbery and drug dealer. Right. And so it's not very conducive to getting a job. And so they're paroled out, uh, which is about 98% of the men that go to prison parole out at some point. Uh, and so they're paroled out and given a $200 check and told good luck. Um, and they don't know what to do with it um, and how to start over. Um, so <clears throat> I felt the need to, to, you know, now give back because I've been a taker all my life. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the thing I learned most in prison is that, you know, my first 33 years were all about what I could get and take. And I wanted to spend the rest of my life giving back. And so I started a nonprofit called Exodus Ministry. And so to answer your question, I got a chance to speak at least once, maybe twice a week yeah. in churches and uh, civic clubs, uh, just different men's groups, whatever, and, and talk about the story of Exodus and what we were trying to do and to raise money uh, and funds and awareness. So I had, I'd had the chance to speak many times, but typically it was in a, a rotary club of, you know, 50 guys right, or may, right. maybe, maybe a small church with two or 300 people in the audience, you know, uh, not thousands, five <laughs> times in, you know, four or five hours. Uh, so it, it was, I wasn't scared because I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of public speaking. And one of the things that I always do, Jeff, is I speak from my heart. Yeah. I, I don't take notes. Uh, I've tried it a couple of times and every time I do, I screw up because I, I get lost <laughs> I, and I can't figure out where, I, where I'm supposed to be in my notes. And so I'm sitting there searching around and searching around and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh yeah, here we go. So I, I literally, uh, and it make, to me, it makes it easier uh, yeah. because when you have a passion for something and you can speak from your heart, it just kind of flows out. Well, it's uh, who you are. And uh, Mike Rouse makes some time uh, running Rousey on Twitter and on Instagram. You can follow Mike Rouse S run Texas. So, uh, Mike, we're so excited to have you on again. And, man, I was so um, thrilled just to see what you've been doing. And your story is fascinating. So before we get to what sent you to prison, my friend, he's running an ultra marathon and it's crazy for me, but the question is, what is the longest race you have ever run? Uh, the longest I've ever run so far, so far, <laughs> life is not over. Uh, 24 hour championships. Um, oh. I've run, I've run several. I've run like uh, uh, probably, I think it's 21 times I've run 24 straight hours. Wow. Um, but this was the U.S. championships back in the 90s, and I ran 126.55 miles in one day. Oh, my goodness. So it just uh, as I say, uh, Jeff, it was a marathon and a 100-mile cool down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or a 100-mile so, warm-up and then a marathon, either way. And looking at your bio, it says that you're 68 years old, and at least you used to run the amount of miles your age was. Do you still do that? Surely. Yes, uh, this October third, I'll be running sixty-nine miles. Wow. Uh, Phenomenal! Just, just a day in the life. And where it all began, as I recall, you were not a runner, and you had a difficulty walking the the yard, so to speak, at the um, the prison you were at. Let's back way up. What sent you to prison? Well, Jeff, as I said, I, I was a very fortunate young man. Um, I grew up playing golf junior high, high school and, and college at a full scholarship for college golf. So I never had to pay for college. Um, well, I, I guess I did. I earned my way through. But um, and then I got out and golf, the golf thing was kind of over. Uh, I got away from it. But I'd always kind of considered myself an athlete um, because I was pretty good at, at my golf game. And uh, uh, and I followed sports since the day I was born. You know, baseball, football, basketball, I, you know, I knew I knew all the things about sports and I just considered myself an athlete. Um, and so I got when I went through my first divorce, um, my first marriage had ended in divorce in, in 1982. I kind of went off the deep end. Um, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I had free time. I had my two children were, were no longer living with me 100 percent of the time. So I had a lot of free time and I got got into the golf again. Uh, eight years later and started playing in tournaments and flying all over the country 
playing in you know the U.S. Amateur, the Texas Amateur, the Southern Amateur, just different tournaments. Uh, some pro ams. I played in the pro am at Pebble Beach. Um, in 1983 so I, I played all over the country my best friend had some had a couple of Learjets and we would fly around um but i got involved in, in drugs and alcohol very very heavily uh, i had a thousand dollar a week cocaine habit because i was successful in my business and so i had money uh, and unfortunately uh, i won't get into all the details but i i got charged with the five-year sentence or charged with conspiracy to possess cocaine with intent to distribute, received a five-year prison sentence and ended up spending 14 months in prison. And on the very first day uh, that I sat in that cell looking up at the ceiling on my bunk bed, uh, I, I began to weep and just thought to myself, man, what have you done with your life? You had every opportunity in the world and you blew it. And now here you are. And at the time, I didn't know how long I was going to be in there on a five-year right. sentence. Uh, I, I was fortunate to only spend 14 months because of good behavior and first time offender, that kind of thing. But I realized that's not how I wanted to spend my life. Um, and as I analyzed myself over the next few months, uh, I realized that I wanted to start giving back instead of being a taker. But hmm. I, I had to get myself together first while I was in there. And so after a couple of weeks, I went out on the yard one day and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do to kind of physically, because I was a shell of a man. I weighed 120 pounds, six foot tall, 120. The cocaine had literally destroyed myself, uh, my body. And, and so I saw, you know, guys lifting weights and I'm thinking, gosh, I can hardly pick up a fork. <laughs> There's no way I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get on lift weights with these guys that have been lifting for 10 or 15 years of incarceration. And other guys were doing this, that, the other. And, you know, some just standing around smoking cigarettes and, and stuff. But I saw guys running around the exterior of the prison yard, just circles, just at the farthest points along the fence and back up to the building and around. And so I stopped one of the guys and I said, hey, if you don't mind me asking, what, what is what's the distance here? And he said, it's two and a half laps per mile. And I thought, OK, if I, so if I ran five laps, that's two miles. I can do that. That's not a big deal. <laughs> and so, of course, I'm in I'm in my my cell uniform and my in, inmate uniform and in steel toed boots. And so I started out running at a very, very slow pace. And I didn't make one loop before I thought my heart was going to explode. And so I started walking, kind of slowed down to a walk. And I'd walk until I was like, OK, I've got my breath back. Now I can start running again. And I would run and walk and run and until I got all five laps in. And I laid down in my bunk that night and my legs started to hurt. And I thought, you know, it's kind of interesting. My legs hurt, but yet it's a good hurt, yeah. you know, because I did something positive. And so I kept at it. And every day when I had my hour on the yard, I would go out there and, and do loops around the, the penitentiary yard until I could run the five loops without stopping. And then just kind of slowly progressed up to seven, eight, 10, whatever. And by the time I left in 14 months, I was running six, seven miles a day. <laughs> and, uh, so my, my running experience started on the yard of a prison well and hey, it stayed it stayed with me now for 35 years that's phenomenal mike i just want to back up a little bit when you were in prison or got convicted did some of those friends that you had prior leave you did you feel alone or were there still some people involved in your life at that time I had some friends uh that were still involved but so many of my friends had become my drug friends yeah and I knew when I came home that I could not go back to that. Um, one thing, Jeff, that I heard while I was in, I'll never forget it. I'd been, I was about halfway through my incarceration period and they brought in a guy um, who had been in prison for years, but he'd been out for 15 years, had gotten his life together and was, was a solid citizen. And they brought him in to speak to us and he came in and, you know, very well put together. I mean, he was, you know, you could tell he was, he was used to giving speeches and talks. Um, and he says, hey, guys, you know, um, one thing I want to share with you is that if you're sitting in this room today, you're going to parole out at some point. There's guys in this prison that never will parole out. They've got life sentences without parole. But for the most part, <clears throat> excuse me, you've been allowed to come to this meeting today because you're going to parole out and they're trying to get you, help, help you get ready for when you're released. And he said, so I want to just start off with a couple of things. And, and it's the old, the old adage, I've got good news, I've got bad news. <laughs> And he said, I'm going to start with the good news to kind of get you on a positive note. And he said, the good news is that when you get out of here, when you get your parole papers and they call your name and walk you to the front gate and let you out the door, all you have to do 
to get your life together is change one thing. That's it. You can get your life together by changing just one thing. And then he paused and I'm thinking, gosh, that sounds pretty simple. I mean, I, I can certainly change one thing. He said, now here's the bad news. That one thing is everything. Wow. Everything is that one thing. And he said, what I mean by that is you can't go back to the same job. You can't go back to the same friends. You can't go back to the same habits and lifestyle. And he went on with this, you know, this laundry list of things that you can't do anymore, that you, that's the everything. And as he's saying it, I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty huge. And so I went back uh, home uh, a few months later, I got paroled out, went back home. And without getting into details, uh, I'd only been home for just a few days and I was asked to go to lunch with from one of my older buddies. Yeah. And on the way to the restaurant, he reached into his pocket and pulled out a vial of cocaine and said, hey, let's celebrate you being home. Wow. And it took me back. I mean, it took me back. I was like, oh, my gosh, that guy was exactly right. I can't stay here. I've got to get away from this and get away from the people that know that know me here in my hometown and that know me all my life. Who every time I go in the grocery store, just I, I think they're staring at me to see if I'm going to make a mistake. And now I've been offered drugs. And if I use that and then go drug test, I'm going back to prison. So I've got to get out of here and start over fresh. And and so that's what I did. I literally packed my stuff, told my mom and dad, hey, I can't stay here. I've got to start over fresh and clean. And I moved to Dallas, Texas from Abilene wow. and started over. Hey, so when from that point did you figure out you wanted to participate in ultra marathons and uh, do that more? And from that point, when did you start with your first uh, shoe deal? As I know now you work with car. Right. Well, uh, I, uh, I started in the running business pretty shortly after that. Um, I got a job in a running store, a retail running store. I'd never been retail in my life. I actually, I was a custom home builder, uh, small, com small commercial uh, buildings as well. Uh, and I'd shopped a lot. <laughs> I'd been in a lot of retail stores, <laughs> but I'd never worked in one. And so um, I literally, but I couldn't go back into construction because my dad, who had been my partner, had retired while I was incarcerated. And obviously I had lost everything when I went to prison financially i'd file bankruptcy trying to pay off all my debts and lawyer fees and all that kind of stuff and so i financially was was bankrupt and i, I really didn't want to go back into construction anyway um it wasn't something i just was in love with but my you know it supported me a good income and i worked with my dad so i i, I kind of went along with it but yeah. um I, I this love i'd gained for running just kind of came up and, and I thought, you know what, let me just see if I can get a job in a running store and kind of be around it a little bit, you know, and it's sports, it's kind of cool. Uh, and so I went into a running store and got a job as a greeter. My first job in a running store was, uh, good morning. Welcome to our store. Uh, are you looking for shoes or apparel or hydration? What are you looking for today? How can we help you? That was my job. And then I would, you know, motion them over to where they were supposed to go. To, for the service they needed. And uh, so I, I did that for a few years and realized that, you know, I'd kind of I, I became the store manager, uh, worked my way up to store manager, um, and then eventually decided I wanted to have my own running store someday. And in order for me to do that, I probably should learn the wholesale side of the business. So I got a, I got a job with job with Brooks Sports and then Mizuno and kind of worked my way up through various brands over the years. So that was kind of my experience in the running business. Um, and like I say, as I was running after I got out of prison, uh, how I got into ultras was that, uh, again, growing up very competitive as a golfer, you know, you, sure. you, you tee it up on number one and your goal isn't to finish 18 holes. Your goal is to win the tournament. Right. 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 Um, so I certainly never was any Tiger Woods, uh, but you know, I, I was good enough to get a college scholarship. So I thought I could play with anybody. And so I went to my very first 5K race about six months after I got out of prison. 
And I'm again, I'm thinking I'm pretty cool and I'm fit and I'm ready to do this. I've been running six, seven, eight miles a day, and this is only 3.1. How much did you weigh at that time, if I can interrupt? Uh, by then, I was probably up to about 140, 145. Okay. Yeah, I'd kind of gotten back to that. And I've always been a skinny guy. I've always just been very, very fortunate. So, you know, the gun goes off and I take off. And again, I don't know anything about what I'm doing. I've just run, right, around a prison yard, or around the streets. I, I've never been into a race in my entire life. And so the gun goes off and I'm running along and I get a mile or so into it. And all of a sudden, here goes a guy. And I'm at the time, I'm 34 years old, right? A guy goes by me who's probably in his 60s and he's not even breathing hard. And he just blows right by me. I'm like, wow. And that old man just, you know, just took me out. And then this, I don't know, 10, 12, 13, 14 year old young boy comes blowing by me. And I'm thinking, a kid's beating me, a kid. And next thing you know, a woman about my age goes by me. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm getting beat by a woman in a sport. And I don't mean that as a male chauvinist. It's just, I understand. It, it just, it just took me back to think that an older guy, a younger kid and a, and a female are beating me. Yeah. And you know, I, I didn't know what to do with it. Because again, I was this very competitive guy who went to the first tee box tr thinking I'm going to win. Uh, and so I, I, I really didn't know. It was, and it was, I got embarrassed. I, I didn't know what to think, what to feel. But as I got to, into it and got to studying it, I realized, you know, I didn't start running until I'm 33. Right. So my aerobic capacity was never there. You know, these people that were beating me probably had been running for years and years and years. Maybe the old guy had been running since he was in college. I mean, or high yeah. school, you know, who knows? But, you know, they knew how to run faster than me. Uh, they were probably fitter than me. Uh, and so, it, you know, I, I kind of put it all in a perspective. But what I found out is when I moved up to 10K and then my first half marathon, I could run the distance at the same pace. Um, so I had, I had the stamina yeah. and the strength. I just didn't have the aerobic capacity to run fast. Sure. And then I did, I, I was going to do one marathon. That was going to kind of be my deal. Uh, I was going to do the one time. And so in 1990, <clears throat> excuse me, 1988, <clears throat> I did my first marathon and finished it. And I'll never forget crying coming into the finish line. Uh, that I was so happy that I'd finally done something, you know, that, that yeah. distance. And again, it wasn't that much slower per mile than that 5k had been um, a few months or a year younger uh, earlier. Um, and, and so I, it really just kind of, man, this is my, this is my jam right here. Marathons. Yeah. And I ran three or four, got, got qualified, went to Boston. And then I had a dear friend who was about 20 years older than me who said, Hey, call me up. Hey, I'm going to lunch. I want to go take you to lunch. I want to hear about Boston. We go to lunch. I'm telling him about my Boston experience and I've got my chest out. You know, I just ran the Boston marathon, <laughs> and, you know, three hours and whatever it was. And he's just kind of taking it all in. And, and I finished. And he says, well, Mike, I tell you what, when you become a man, come out and run my 50 mile race. And I, and I said, what's what? He said, I have a 50 mile race that when I turned 50 several years ago, uh, I wanted to run 50 miles to celebrate 50 years of good living. Wow. And so some of my friends and I went out and ran 50 miles and it caught on next year. There were about 20 of us that did it. And now it's actually a race here in Dallas called the Ed Jackson 50 5 And so here's this guy, 55, 60 years old, calling me out <laughs> to do his 50 mile race, which is all I needed. Right. And so I said, Ed, I'm in, I'll be there. Wow. And so I went out and did it as, as a fundraiser for the Exodus ministry that I had started. Um, and I raised about $15,000 that day running the 50 miles. And it just, it was just like a whole new experience. And I've been running ultras ever since. Hey, so if you would, Mike Rouse, uh, make some time, make sure you check him out on uh, Facebook or just Google his name. He's everywhere. But Mike, uh, to bring in David Goggins into the mix. So that kind of bridges the Navy SEALs. David Goggins did not start running at 120 pounds. He was well over that. Then he came down and uh, cut weight. But just share a little bit how you first met David. Well, I call him Goggy. He's my, we've been, we've been buddies. We've been buddies since I, I don't remember exactly when I met him, 2003 or four, whenever he started running, I was actually at the 24 hour run 
and he shows up and he was doing it. He had lost some friends. Uh, and I'm not sure if they were at, at the time, if they were SEALs or, or just Navy buddies or what, but he had lost several friends uh, in the war uh, in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever. And he was going to do it as a, a fundraiser for them and their families. And he was going to run a hundred miles. And so it was, a, I say it was a 24 hour run, but again, I don't know him and nobody knew him because he had not really trained for this. And he, he walks up, he's 290 pounds. And here you got all these, you know, these ultra people that are, you know, skin and bones almost. And here's this big guy standing at the start. I'm thinking, who's this big, big lug, you know, what's he going to do here? And he kind of took off and, you know, I'll have to be honest, the first five or 10 miles is, is we saw, it was a one mile loop there in San Diego. Wow. And as I'm watching him run, I'm thinking, there's no way this dude's going much farther. I mean, he's, he's carrying a ton of weight. Yeah. And when he hit a hundred miles, he just stopped. He said, that's it. I got the, I got my hundred. I'm not running for 24. I just want to run a hundred miles. That was the goal. <laughs> and so we, that's how we met. And then we became buddies. Uh, and then we started, he, he got into the uh, Ultraman World Championships in Kona, Hawaii a few years later, a couple, three years later. And uh, we had a good time there. He actually did a great job there. He had never, he didn't own a bicycle. He borrowed a bike. Uh, he, cause he was a decent swimmer, not a good swimmer as most seals usually are. Right, right, right. Um, but, but he was a tough, tough runner because he, he'd been, become a, you know, a big time ultra runner by then. And so anyway, he, but he borrows a bike and on, on untrained bike legs, he, uh, 10K swim, it's a 271 mile bike and then a double marathon on a borrowed bike. He ended up getting second place in the world. Wow. Yeah. Without wow. training. So he's, he's, he's every bit as tough, uh, as everybody thinks he is. He he's quite the guy and even tougher now than he was back then, because again, this was really early on in his career, right. but, but we've stayed in touch down through the years. Um, and of course he's become this, you know, iconic, uh, figure, uh, that I think everybody in the ultra world or running world kind of knows who he is now. I don't know how many million followers he's got, but Goggy's quite the guy. Uh, yeah. and I tell you what, it's not a facade, you know, uh, you know, you see, a, and I'll just use this as a comparison. You see a Sylvester Stallone play Ro uh, Rambo or Rocky, right, right. or you see Chuck Norris play so-and-so and so, you know, who, whatever John, John called, uh, called Van Dam. Van Dam. Yeah. There yep, you go. Yep, yep. You see those, they're acting, right. right. I don't know who they are as a person. They may be pretty bad boys. I don't know. David Goggins isn't acting. David Goggins is the guy you see on the videos who has a very rough language, not afraid to say whatever yep. you know, he wants to say, but he lives that life. I mean, Goggy will wake up at two in the morning and just say, you know, I'm going to go run 20. Wow. And go run 20 and come back and, you know, go to work and then and go run 10 at lunch. And then, you know, that afternoon, go ride his bike. 50, 60, 70 miles. I mean, he's, he's not afraid of anything. And like I said, he lives it, breathes it and is it. He, he is. And as he says, I, I'm David Goggins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he uh, <clears throat> his book off Amazon audible. And uh, after that started following him and quite, quite the man, quite the person and the, the phenomenal story for you as well, Mike. And I just look at your testimony and where, God has brought you and God has never left you. He's always been there with you. Um, if you were to speak to somebody that's, whether they're struggling with addiction or have some uncertainty in their life, whether from the pandemic, the last 14 months, what advice would you give to them if they said to you, yeah, Mike, that's good for you. God was there, but I don't see him in my life right now. You know, I think the thing that whether you're a believer in God or not, I, I, the message that I want to tell and share, and it's something that I'm going to really take from this experience, because again, when you run five to six hours a day, every day for 31 days, you got a lot of time to think Yeah. because I don't listen to music. Uh, I've never in 135,000 miles of running. I've never heard a song. I've never heard a song. Uh, I run, I listen to my body. And as I kiddingly say, this body makes the most beautiful Mozart music you've ever heard in your entire life. I mean, it's a concerto that you can't believe. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so, but my thing is, 
whether you, whether you are a believer in God or not, as a human being, you have been, probably been a taker all your life. And that's part of the reason why you're where you're at is that you're looking for somebody to, to fulfill you, to sustain you, to make you important or look good, whatever the case may be. And it's what I learned while I was in that penitentiary, Jeff, is that what made my life complete was not being about Mike Rouse. It was about being about other people. And when you start to give back, you know, there's a scripture. It's very simple. It's better to give than to receive. Yeah. Very, very simple. You know, very few words. It's not some, you know, four sentence, you know, beautiful parable about something. It's a very simple, it's better to give than to receive. And those are the truest words because I get more blessing out of what I'm able to give than anything I ever got as a home builder, driving a Porsche, member of a country club, flying on a Learjet, running those miles for those men who'd sacrificed their, their lives and their families who are now living with that sacrifice and the pain of it, giving back to those people was the greatest, some of the greatest joy that I can't even, I can't even comprehend and imagine what, what I, I can't explain, excuse me. I can't explain what joy I've received from that. Um, in fact, I talked to one of the wives yesterday because um, I almost quit at mile 25 of the 25th day. 26. Uh, I had, you know, I'd, I'd already run 25 days, 31 miles. My body was starting to get tired and I, I knew I, I 99% sure I was still going to finish, but I made a mistake. Um, and I went out and made a wrong turn. I was out on country roads and kind of got lost and couldn't find my way. And it ended up, I ran 20 miles with a 12 ounce water bottle. I was only going to run these little six, seven, eight mile loops and refuel, refuel, refuel. Right. And I got lost and went down and I, I couldn't figure out where I was. I took a, a turn. It was another wrong turn, another turn. It was the wrong. And next thing you know, I'm just wandering around out there. And finally, I got back to where I, I knew I, I, I knew where I was, but I was five miles from home and I'd been out there for 20 miles in 94 degree heat. Wow. And my bottle was hundred percent empty. Uh, I hadn't had any water in probably 30 minutes to an hour and I've still got five miles left and I, I was about to quit. And my mind kept saying, what are you doing here? You're killing yourself. You've already run 25, 31 miles, 25 times. You have nothing to prove to anybody. You've done something that 99.99% .99 of the world can't even imagine doing. Why not just throw in the towel, call somebody to come get you and, and be done with it. And I, I was, so close to doing it but yet i knew if i quit that one day that really my mission was going to be you know compromised and so as i'm walking down the road literally as slow as you can walk just trying to contemplate what i was going to do and who i was going to call to come get me i was looking down at the at the pavement and i looked at i just happened to see the front of my shirt and it said in honor of aaron vaughn and the night before I had talked to his wife, Kimberly, and asked her if there's anything she wanted me to say on my page about Aaron or his kids or her, what made him so special. And if he had any kind of a song that he would want played kind of in the background of that message. And, the, and she told me he, want, he wanted, he would have loved to have simple man because he was a very simple man. And I said, well, I'll never forget it. It's so funny how it works out, Jeff, but I'll never forget saying to her, Kimberly, I just want you to know that I'm going to run with everything I have tomorrow wow. to make, to give honor to your husband and to you and your three children for him. And as I looked down and saw his name, that, that conversation came back to my mind. I said, there's absolutely no way you're stopping. You're going to call Kimberly Vaughn tonight and say, you know what? Thanks. Thanks for your husband sacrificing his life. But I was hurting and I didn't want to finish. There was no way that could happen. And so I, I guess kind of reached down inside of myself um, and I pulled out the quote that I've used many days of this. Uh, it's kind of a, a sections of the Navy SEAL creed. Yeah. And it says, I will never quit. Though knocked down, I will get back up every time. I am never out of the fight. 
And Marcus kept saying those words to himself when he was crawling through those mountains in Afghanistan yeah. is I will, I'm never out of the fight. And I thought, you know what, Mike, you can't be out of the fight either because this is something bigger than you. This is about bringing honor and glory to a man who gave the ultimate sacrifice right. and to a wife and three children who are living that, that sacrifice every day. So I finished it and the, the next few days became easier. Oh, <laughs> well, Mike, thanks so much for sharing. Uh, if you want to look back and check out the website, bootcampaign.org, you can see the 31 days, 31 miles each day for 31 phenomenal people that, um, that we're honored and uh, thank you, Mike, for continuing to honor them and bringing awareness that we can get involved and keep their families in prayer. Um, your detached retina certainly was a big injury and has been something that you've been recovered from. I remember the last podcast and several that I've listened to, you've suffered phenomenal injuries and still never quit. The one that I'd like you to share just in closing is the one that uh, you started running, but then you fell, and then with a knee, I believe it was wrapped with duct tape. Yeah, you kept on and finished that race. Could you just share that story for us? Sure. Well, um, you know, kind of back to the JT, my buddy John Tomlinson, who was on Extortion Seventeen, one of the thirty-one. Uh, we had started a race called Jogging for Frogman in twenty twelve on the first anniversary, and we did it then. Uh, and I decided I was going to run 24 hours prior to it for JT yeah. uh, as a commemorative to him and his life. And then we were going to run this 5K in honor of all 31 the next day. And by the time the race came around, I decided, you know what? I can't just do it for one guy out of 31. I got to do it for everybody. So I got shirts and I ran each each lap. I ran a 3.1 mile loop because it was a 5K race yeah. then on Saturday. So I ran 3.1 miles 31 times in each loop. I had a shirt on in honor of one of those guys. Um, just as I did this time, but this time I did the 31 miles per day. But so I, I, I was going to run 3.1 miles 31 times. I did that the first two years of the event. And then the third year, uh, we started out. And again, I was going to do the same thing. And on the very first loop, a half a mile and a half into it. So basically halfway through a 3.1 mile loop, uh, I had a group of five or six friends running with me and we were talking just, you know, I hadn't seen some of them in a while because I was in, I'd gone back to San Diego and and we're talking. And as we are, one of them asked me a question. And I was kind of turned and looked over my shoulder to answer to answer him. And when I did, I didn't realize there was a about a half inch or so gap in the concrete sidewalk where a tree root had gone under the sidewalk and had pushed it up. And I didn't realize it. And I I hit that thing just dead on with my right toe, right foot. And because I was looking back and it just caught me off guard. So I just went literally straight down and hit my left kneecap on the concrete because I didn't have a chance to brace with my hands or anything. And I mean, it made this loud pop. And as, as luck would have it, there was a, I say luck, it's coincident would have it. Yeah. There was a, a nurse that was running with me and she said, Ralphie, I think you just broke your kneecap. I heard it pop. And I said, no, I don't think so. And she said, oh, yeah. She said, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And I said, no, nah, I think I just kind of, you know, got, got, got a little jam up on it. it it'll be fine. I'm gonna, let's walk about 100 yards and it'll be fine. And I'll, I'll, I'll pick back up. It'll go away. So we walked about 100 yards and I started to run. And first step, it was just like excruciating. I mean, intense. So I said, you know what? Let's just go ahead and walk all the way back to, you know, the station where I'm going to rehydrate and change shirts and stuff. And, and we'll, we'll see how it is at that point. So I get back there and is that, you know, we're walking. So for a mile plus to get back there. And when we do, one of my buddies who's an orthopedic surgeon is there and he's I come walking up. He says, you're already walking on lap one. And I said, well, I do. I take walk breaks, you know, through this thing because it's, it's basically 24 hours. Right. And he says, yeah, but, and I said, well, and so I explained to him what had happened. He said, well, let me take a look at it. So he gets down, you know, on his knees and, he starts feeling my left kneecap and he goes, he looks up at me and he says, Mikey, you fractured your knee. And I said, are you sure it's fractured? Not just a stinger or something. He says, Mike, I've been an orthopedic surgeon for 30 years. You fractured your kneecap. I can feel it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And he says, I assume you're going to stop now. Right. And I'm like, doc, I can't stop. He says, you have a fractured kneecap. You can't run on that. And I said, Doc, 31 men died. A fractured knee is not that big a deal right now to me. 
And so we, we got black duct tape and wrapped it as tight as we could as I mean, just four or five times to keep my legs straight so that I wouldn't bend it and wouldn't, you know, it was forced me to also walk on it because I couldn't really run, but I race walked for the next 23 and a half hours and ended up getting 101 miles, uh, got all, all 31 laps were done. And then I did a couple of extra laps for Marcus Latrell and Chris Kyle yeah. and, uh, and finished and went, went to see my doctor buddy on Monday. He did an MRI just to, you know, make certain. And it was fractured and I was on crutches for seven weeks. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, again, it, it uh, I'm just not a quitter. Um, I don't know what it's going to take to get me to stop. I guess when the good Lord calls me home, uh, whenever that is. But uh, there you go. Well, keep inspiring people until that day happens. And uh, we just thank you so much. Again, it's um, bootcampaign.org if you want to find out more information. How Mike Rouse ran 31 days, 31 miles each day for 31 individuals that paid the uh, ultimate sacrifice for our freedom that we should not take for granted or forget. But Mike, we just, um, again, it's an honor for me just to call your friend to be able to text you and have you respond to be able to pray for you and know that you are uh, cheering me on. And I just thank you so much for your friendship, but most of all for how God created you with this determination to complete what you start and uh, bring honor and remembrance to so many. So Mike, we just thank you so much. Well, thanks Jeff. It's, it's my honor too. And I'm, I'm glad that you reached out to me those several months ago. Uh, I knew, I had no idea who you were. Uh, I, I'm most seriously, I had no idea who you were and, but I'm, I'm just a guy that I, I trust that when somebody reaches out to me, there's a reason yeah. it's, it's, there's not coincidence right. that there, there are reasons why those kinds of things happen. And I could, you know, if you had another three hours for this podcast, I could tell you coincidences that have happened in my life yeah. that you, are unexplainable, but God just brought them to into my life. Um, so I just thank you for the privilege and the opportunity. Uh, to share my message and my story. And I, and if I could just close with, with one little running quote from yeah. one of the greatest distance runners America has ever seen, Steve Prefontaine. And he said, it's been quoted many times, that to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. Oh. And I thank him for saying that because it may, those words mean so much to me. Because if I don't give my best, I personally have sacrificed a gift that was given to me, uh, a, the gift of running, the gift of a healthy body, a gift of a, a passionate heart that cares about people and their needs. And so if I don't give my very best, if I only give 80 or 90 percent, then I've sacrificed part of the gift that was given to Mike Rouse. And uh, and then there's a bi biblical quote uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah. And God has given me so much. <clears throat> that I know he expects me to, to use that for his glory. So I'm, I'm honored and, and privileged. Well, Mike, thanks so much. And we'll have to get you back on at least three more times an hour each time. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk again. But uh, All right. Mike, thanks. Again, that's Mike Rouse. Make some time. Uh, make sure you check out the podcast, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, the Backfire Podcast with Jeff Fuller of Jay Fuller Interviews, Jay Fuller Interviews on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you so much, and uh, make sure you give your best today. No need to slack. It doesn't matter the weather. It doesn't matter how you feel. Push through. Walk if you have to, but make sure you get it done. Thanks all, and uh, thanks, Mike.